it's Salt City Hoops podcast time. Uh, the NBA season is wrapped up. What a finish by the Milwaukee Bucks. Giannis doing all the things. Chris Middleton doing a lot of things. Drew Holiday with a heck of a defensive series. Bobby Portis, of all people, getting his name chanted after sitting at home unemployed for much of the season. Uh, a wild finish. And what it means is that now everybody's focus turns to uh, the next thing on the calendar, which is the NBA draft, which is, which is one of those things, by the way, if I'm just honest and self-aware here for a second, it's one of those things that I, I'm Dan Clayton, the managing editor of Salt City Hoops, by the way, um, the draft is not my strength. I'll just be honest. I, uh, I, I'm so hyper-focused on the NBA and trying to keep track of, you know, broad narratives for 30 teams and contracts and cap situations and all that, that I just don't, I just don't have time to follow um, collegiate prospect, overseas prospect, et cetera. So what I did tonight is I found two guys who are way smarter than me at this stuff. And um, they're going to educate me and hopefully by proxy, all of you. Um, and yeah, we're going to, we're going to talk NBA draft and get into the Jazz's draft situation. So my two very special guests for this conversation. Uh, first of all, we have Adam Spinella, uh, coach spins. I believe you like to go by, right? <laughs> That's right. There you go. Uh, Adam and I know each other. We've known each other for a lot of years. Um, we've written at some of the same places. Um, he's currently working for um, the Box and One, or, or I shouldn't say working for, he's currently launching the Box and One, um, a, a project where he's doing just a ton of great draft work. If you're not following Adam Spinella on Twitter and the Box and One, that's the Box and One underscore, make sure you are because uh, they have lots of great stuff um, that Adam is putting out draft prospects, you know, Google Docs. Um, videos, all sorts of great stuff. And as the nickname implies, he also coaches basketball as well. He's a, he's a high school basketball coach. So Adam, um, great to talk to you, my friend, and uh, welcome on. Thank you so much, Dan. Thrilled to be here. Uh, thrilled to have you. Also thrilled to have Isaac Adams, one of our great Salt City Hoops writers. And uh, like I mentioned, Isaac is one of those guys who just, he he actually follows the draft. He, he has probably had guys on his uh you know, circled and underlined on his mental draft board for months, long before I even knew any of their names. Um, so happy to have Isaac, who, uh, as I was tweeting about today, just uh, one of our really erudite and smart writers at Salt City Hoops. Isaac, thanks for joining in. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. You know, I do. I try to follow the draft. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Um, I'm nowhere near as in-depth as Coach Spins is on this kind of thing, but I, I try to keep track of it. And one of the fun things as a jazz fan is you get to deep, dig deeper into those uh, deep draft picks more often. <laughs> yeah, right. This isn't like a conversation um, with Detroit where like, you know, you're choosing between one of two or three guys. The jazz need to really be aware of, you know, literally dozens of players because you don't know what's going to be available to you at the 30th pick in the draft. So we'll talk about some of those names before we get there. Um, just to kind of zoom out and get a little bit of a macro view on this draft, Coach, um, what, uh, what, what are the experts, yourself included, saying about just the overall quality of this draft? Is there, um, you know, is this one of those quote-unquote deep drafts? Is this going to be a draft where it's going to be problematic to find a potential contributor at 30? What are you, what are you hearing and seeing and thinking about the, the prospects in this class? Nope. Guys, please call me Adam tonight. No, no, need for the, uh, <laughs> no I, get, coach. I get that during the day enough. So well, um, I just, I, I'm just expecting you're going to make us run ladders if we get something wrong. So I... <laughs> not tonight, guys. Um, okay. when, it, when it comes to the draft class this year, I think that the relative strength in comparison to other years is really at the top. 
this has a pretty defined consensus top six names. And okay. all six of these guys are pretty much candidates that would probably go or at least be a threat to go number one in each of the last, you know, last year and then maybe number two right behind Zion Williamson a couple of years ago. A really, really high caliber of talent at the top where anybody in that top five or, or top six is going to wind up with a franchise-altering prospect. The other area in terms of depth that this, this draft has is being really solid in that middle to late part of the first round. So for Jazz fans, I think that's a, a great spot for them to be in to know that they're going to get a, a true first-round talent at the 30th overall pick, that there aren't a lot of guys that they're gonna, going to have to reach for in order to justify the, the talent selection at the area. But I think that I think of this draft more in terms of ledges. You know, we mentioned that top yeah. six being really, really important, but there's a pretty large gap between them and that next tier. So if you're picking in the 8, 9, 10, 11 spot, it's not as much high ceiling talent as you would typically find there. Uh, likewise, I think once you get to, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, you find okay guys there. It's not much differentiation between where you would be 22, 3, 4, 5. So very ledges of talent. I think it suits the Jazz for where they're at. Um, just so you guys have a an understanding, I have 35 guys that essentially received first-round grades on my draft okay. board. So the Jazz should be in firm position to be able to get somebody that is certainly a first-round talent. Okay. All right. That's that's good to know. I was actually going to ask you about tiers. I know a lot of analysts and even a lot of teams use kind of um, that tier thinking just to kind of save themselves from reaching too far for a, a prospect that fits a need or whatever. So, so you're saying, and, and by the way, like 30 is a weird place to pick, right? Because it means that you're getting a guy who is who's first round talent by definition, but also could just could very easily have been second round talent, but you're having to guarantee two years of salary and give him the scaled rookie deal at, you know, slightly above the minimum, not a ton above the minimum. So, but you're saying that at 30 in this year's class, you're going to really have your pick among five or six guys who, who in a typical draft should be first rounders. I would say so. The curious part about it is who's going to be remaining on the board, right? Jazz have very little control, if any, right. over what the first 29 selections are. And, you know, there are 35 guys who I gave first round grades to. Several of them are long term projects and guys that are certainly not ready to contribute in the first year or two that they're in the league. Others are older prospects who might be ready to come in and be more of a role player, but don't have as highly defined of a ceiling. And I know sure. we'll, we'll talk about some of each as we go forward here, but that's really where Utah has very little control of maybe it is just prospects and projects that are available when they're on the board at 30. You know, guys like BJ Boston and Greg Brown out of Texas who were tantalizing with their high school traits but did not live up to the bill their first year in college. Mm -hmm. I still have them as first-round talent, but if they're both available for Utah, how does that help them move the needle towards a championship in the next year or two? That's a really different organizational question than, hey, there are three different types of role players that might be able to come in and just help us plug a hole on the bench year one or two. Which one do we take? So, it, it, again, fascinating to see how it plays out in front of them. Yeah, well, I definitely want to circle back to that point because, again, we're talking about the 30th pick in the draft, and I think if you look at 
the historic yield at that draft position or, or at draft positions around there, right? Because in any given draft, the quality might, you know, flex one direction or the other. But if you look at guys drafted, you know, let's, let's call it 25th through 35th, even the ones who eventually got really good, like a Jimmy Butler or someone like that, um, you know, they weren't contributing at a star level right away. And so we'll, we'll circle back to that point around just where the Jazz are at in their, in their contention window and what is reasonable to expect. But before we get there, let's just, uh, Isaac, I'm interested to get your take on kind of macro team needs. And, and to start that conversation, I have a, a half-joking hypothetical question for you. So fill in the, fill in the blank here, Isaac. Um, if the Jazz use their first-round pick to draft another non-shooting traditional big man, Isaac Adams will blank. Lose all of my remaining hair. <laughs> See, I started with that because I know that you had an opinion about the the fact that the Jazz used last year's mid-level exception and their first-round pick both on uh, on you know rim-protecting big men. Yudoka Azebuki was the draft pick. Derek Favors was the signing. So what uh, you know, it's clear at this point that unless there's a larger shakeup, unless someone's traded, that's not necessarily the archetype they need. What what did What's your viewpoint on how the Jazz could best make use of this pick? You know, given who's in the draft and and the kind of guys that I expect should maybe possibly be available at 30, um, I think that they should probably go for looking at somebody in the backup point guard spot. Trent Forrest oh, okay. trying to fill in was, was an experiment, <laughs> but I, I, it was not the best experiment. Joe Ingles being the backup point guard or the de facto point guard was okay during the regular season. Seems like it was kind of a disaster with the kind of level of output we've been getting in the playoffs. We need a real backup point guard. They just need to be targeting a backup point guard. And that's the kind of guy you might be able to get at 30 with a lot of the names who are in this draft, guys who are combo guards or point guards uh, that might fall to the jazz. So that's actually where I think they should focus. But, you know, if the right guy is available in other positions and other places, if Usman Garuba somehow falls down to the Jazz, like, he's not a traditional center, but he is, he's a big, he's an right. undersized big and might make the, give the kind of versatility for when you face those small ball lineups, like, I would, I would be celebrating if they somehow <laughs> got Garuba to fall all the way to them. Well, he's, he's number seven on Adam's big board. So I, I think, um, I think you're right. That would take some miraculous um, draft day imaginations for that to happen. Um, that's an interesting take around their need. And I, and I don't think you're wrong. One of the things I've said actually on, on a few radio appearances and in some other, uh, some other places about the Jazz's postseason flame out is that, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people wanted to make it around, make it about Rudy. And we'll talk, more about that um i think actually a lot of what gave the jazz problems is the fact that mike conley was in street clothes and donovan mitchell while he was scoring in amazing ways he, he also just didn't have the mobility and the and the zip to just kind of get two feet in the lane whenever he wanted and and manipulate the defense and you know just dictate to the clippers and so i i have said a couple times that i think that even if they just had like a journeyman um, like an Ish Smith level, just someone who could go in and run 10 pick and rolls, that might have been enough to push back against the Clippers' high pressure. So I don't, I don't necessarily think you're wrong about, um, whoa, there's my two-year-old. 
um, he's weighing in on this conversation too. Um, I don't think you're wrong about the need for a better third point guard break glass in case of emergency type thing. Um, I, I will tell you, I've focused mostly on um, big wings because I think that's their biggest hole that they need to fill via free agency and or the draft is, is just more big bodies that can stay in front of a Paul George type. But then Adam, I know you have your own take and it's different from both of those. It, it is a little bit. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know how unique it is and I don't watch as much Utah jazz as either of you guys, but to me from a roster construction standpoint, you know, Rudy Gobert enables you because he's such a good rim protector to build out a team that has more offensive minded guards, wings, whoever it may be, because if they get beat off the bounce or can't keep their man in front of them one-on-one, you have Rudy there to clean it up. It's an unbelievable regular season strategy as we've seen, but when you get to the playoffs, you know, the biggest question that I, I asked and, and I run Twitter polls to try to figure out and, and get a survey for what each team needs in the off season in order to continue to, to build forward. And one of the big questions for the Utah jazz was, you know, what, what is it that went wrong in the postseason? Is it schematic with Rudy? Is it that the team needs a, a different option to play small ball five with them? Do they need more length and perimeter defenders that don't get beat? And if you're looking at that last point, getting another perimeter defender and just somebody who comes in that you know is more of a lockdown defensive option than somebody that helps you uh, define your your team around the offense on the perimeter, then you're not necessarily maximizing what Rudy gives you in the regular season. Um, and even if the point is to keep them out of the lane, then what's what's Rudy really doing defensively? You know what I mean? Like if if you're trying so hard to stop ball pre- uh, apply ball pressure and stop penetration, then why have Rudy as in prominent of a role as he is? So that's just one of those things that I I struggle with in thinking about this roster. I would be much more inclined to add somebody who can be more of a stretch four, but also play minutes at the five. And you know the thirtieth pick might not be the best avenue to do so, especially if you need instant impact there. But to me, that's more so the missing piece of I'd rather go bigger and be able to match against teams who have supreme length in the in the postseason and have that kind of ace in the hole option to go to for five, ten minutes a night if you absolutely have to. So if you're if you're talking about, you know, free agent targets when when the taxpayer mid-level exception is likely the Jazz's best asset, you're looking at kind of the Nemanja Bielitsa tier of of you know, stretch bigs that can play some four and five. Is that, is that kind of the, the level of player that would make you think differently about the Jazz's ceiling? Yes. I, I don't know if you like or dislike Bielli specifically, but I just mean like, you know, someone who could, like Bielli is a good rebounder. Yeah. Um, he's not particularly a great rim protector, but, right. you know, he can, he, he can defend within a, within a scheme and, and he can play the four and he can play the five. And so, I mean, is, is that what you're after, do you think, if you're Justin Zanuck? Yeah, somebody like, like the, the perfect role to me is think about what Dario Saric provided for Phoenix this year, where his main role was to come off the bench and he could play the four or the five for them and play decent minutes. And when they needed to sit eight and something wasn't going right, he could slide up there and be a five, no problem. Like it's more so about maybe consolidation of a couple of the guys that they have on the bench and trying to figure out how they get someone who can make as good of an impact as Saric. 
you know, um, sometimes when you need to go smaller to force somebody else's hand, you do it. But what we've also seen, and maybe to the the frustration of some of our hair follicles, uh, <laughs> the, the Jazz are are very intent on building a deep bench of other drop pick and roll defensive bigs with Azubuike right now as as their most recent draft selection. So um, I don't know if the franchise is in a great spot to commit to doing something like that. But to me, from a, a roster-building standpoint, that would make a lot of sense. I mean, I, I will say um, – so, yeah, you're right. The, the Jazz and, and Quinn Snyder particularly has shied away from a backup big man that, were, that would require the Jazz to toggle in and out of completely different defensive philosophies. Like, the Jazz have a pretty set way that they play. They, they obviously tailor to opponents and things like that. Um, but, you know, that's why the Jazz held their nose through Tony Bradley being the backup center during the 1920 season instead of doing the logical thing, which would have been, you know, sliding someone like Jeff Green to center, a move that Houston and later Brooklyn would, would do to great success. So, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I'm not sure that Snyder has the appetite to go full Dario Saric mode. It is an interesting thought to just give themselves a, a, a different component or a different, um, a different option on how to play. But again, um, it would change some of their, their core defensive principles. And I'm not talking about like adjusting or, or um, you know, tweaking a, a specific coverage or where the help comes from. I mean, like it would change who they are defensively. And, and then the last thing I would say, and I'll shut up and we can, talk, we can start talking about draft names. Like, I, I think if we were to apply truth serum to several jazz front office members, and there's a lot of guys in the front office, by the way. So, you know, like this is a under Dennis Lindsay, the front office expanded a lot. And that also means that there are a lot of opinions in play. And so I don't know that there's one opinion. Um, but I think if we were to, you know, talk to Justin Zanuck under penalty of perjury or talk to some of these other people, I think that broadly speaking, they don't view that playoff failure as necessarily a function of what, what Rudy limits you to, you know, from a, from an identity standpoint. Um, I think they're actually pretty comfortable with Rudy guarding in a lot of different contexts. And in fact, in games three and four, so, so like game around the middle of game two in that series is when the Clippers fully committed to small ball. And, um, and so games three and four, the Jazz had Rudy guarding outside, but, but that was before they, they switched the scheme to where they were bringing him, bringing him in on almost every play and leaving the likes of Batum and Terrence Mann. And, and even through that, you know, that period in the series where he was guarding players in space and, you know, guarding on the perimeter and guarding isolations and guarding pick and rolls, he was still far and away, you know, by the numbers. And, and even when you look at different play types, he was still the Jazz's most impactful defender. Then what happened in, in game five is, games five and six rather, is then they made the change to start bringing Rudy in. And the reason they made that change is again, because Reggie Jackson and Paul George could get wherever they wanted to, whenever they wanted to, they didn't even need a pick. Paul George was just being right around Royce O'Neal. Uh, Reggie Jackson was jogging right around Donovan Mitchell and Jordan Clarkson. And, you know, Hey, maybe a healthy Donovan Mitchell changes some of that, but, you know, so again, I, like, I think, 
I think no matter what they do roster wise, most of the decision makers involved with the Jazz still envision Rudy being a 36 minute a night player in the regular season and playoffs going forward. So I don't think they're going to do something that represents a shift away from Rudy. But to your point, Adam, you know, could they, um, could they, could they just find something that gives them another option? I don't know. Isaac, weigh in here because uh, you know we're ta- we're getting very yeah. like in the weeds now on the Jazz. Am I, do you think I'm <laughs> reading this wrong or misrepresenting anything from a Jazz perspective? No, I think you're right, and I think that to a certain extent, no matter what the front office really feels about how they want to build the team, you need to have Quinn's buy-in with it, and he's shown a hesitancy to try and do that. He didn't experiment with it, and I know Ilya the ideal person for doing that kind of small ball five or can play the four position, but he didn't even seem to want to try that with Ilyasova on the roster. And so I think, and this is my read of the series, and maybe I'm just overly optimistic about where the Jazz were. The Jazz lost one and a half of three All-Stars. And yeah. to me, more than anything, that's why they lost that series. It's abandon, not break, perimeter defense with Rudy to clean up the mess. And they were breaking all over the place because Donovan Mitchell had one good leg and Mike Conley wasn't out there. And he's one of our better defenders on the perimeter. And without those people to to shore it up so that it could bend and not break, it just didn't work. And there's just a major step down from Mike Conley to anybody else on the roster. And that's, that's just where we were. And Donovan was transcendent on offense in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it gets lost in the weeds of, of how that game was lost. Donovan Mitchell scored 39 points, nine rebounds, nine assists on a bum ankle in an elimination game. Like that was a great performance on offense. He just didn't have the mobility to be the defender that he normally is, which in my opinion is usually he doesn't hurt you. He doesn't help you a ton, but he yeah, went from being yeah. a neutral on defense to being a negative on defense and everything broke. Yeah. I, I do think that his um, limitations on defense, um, it, it, like that's an under-discussed aspect of that series. Um, and I, and I think that really mattered. Um, again, not like, like you, I don't think Donovan is, is like a plus defender on most days. Um, but I think he's good enough that he can at least, you know, force Reggie Jackson to beat him and not just kind of play the Matador yeah. defense and, and, and give Rudy really no choice, but like, no, now you have to come in because it's either that or a layup. Rudy said that after, um, I believe it was after game five, or maybe it was in the frustration after game six, but he, he said, like, look, if I don't come in, Paul George or Reggie Jackson are scoring layups every trip down. Like, I have to come in, and, and he was right about that. Um, and the, the long right. and short of it with, with the draft philosophy is I, I, I like the idea of them targeting that four-five kind of hybrid, can play the small ball five. I just don't think that's what the front office is targeting. I don't think that that's what Quinn wants. And so it's, you know, we can hypotheticalize about what we want, but it's it's not any indication that I've gotten about how the Jazz want to build their team. Yeah, I do think that if you look back at who Quinn Snyder has played at the four throughout his his Jazz tenure, you find a lot more like Jonas Yurebko, Jay Crowder types who are like hybrid three fours than you find guys who are hybrid four fives. But again, I mean, maybe, maybe this experience causes them to – to rethink that. So I, you know, I guess we'll, we'll get into that, but let's, um, we have 20 or 25 minutes left. Let's start talking about, about names. Um, I don't know the best way to go about this. You two know the prospect way better than I do. So maybe 
Um, Adam, do you, do you maybe just want to start out by talking about the, the three guys in your draft profile? And then Isaac, you can respond to those and, and tell us others that, yeah, let's, let's just dig into your, uh, I guess your main three that you've mentioned um, in connection with the jazz. And then um, I'm sure the conversation will grow past those three. Sure. Yeah. So uh, first things first, when you're picking any time uh, in the first round, you're always looking for best player available because you're hoping that this player pans out to just be in the rotation over a four-year period. And the draft is always such a crapshoot that if someone falls to you, if there's someone that you have highly valued but might not be the best positional fit, you should take them anyway. So that's my two cents on draft process before going into a couple names. You'll see with the three that I mentioned, they're heavily colored around what I believe would be best for this Jazz roster. And that's that hybrid four um, you know, stretch perimeter ability while maybe being able to play the five. First guy I'll mention is Kessler Edwards out of Pepperdine, uh, about six foot eight, six nine, with a seven foot wingspan. Played a couple years in college. Really strong statistical profile as a shooter. Really unorthodox looking shot. Uh, it, it's one of those things where you don't want to harp on somebody who makes 39% of their catch and shoot looks from downtown because they're effective. That's a really effective thing to do. But it's hard to imagine the functionality because it has so much movement doing anything off the dribble. He pretty much has to be a catch-and-shoot type of threat. And what I like about Utah's mm -hmm. offense is the the value that they put on catch-and-shoot threes and how their scheme generates those looks for guys. So I think if there's any one place for Kessler to fit in well, it might be Utah. A uh, switchable defender with that seven-foot wingspan and ready earlier in his career to perhaps make an impact because he's a really polished help defender. To me, that's the biggest area that I look for uh, in trying to figure out which role players are going to be able to come in and play maybe 8 to 14 minutes a night on a good team. It's can they make simple defensive rotations and not break down in those areas. And, and Edwards is very, very strong in that. He proved it at the NBA draft combine. So that was, the, that was the first name I threw out there as more of a, a stretch for maybe a smaller pick-and-pop option um, as he continues to grow and add physicality and strength to his body. He might end up being that smaller five option down the line. Yeah. Now you – oh, go ahead, Isaac. Oh, I was just going to say, my thoughts on Kessler, like – and I think that you mentioned in your video, you're not the biggest Kessler Edwards fan, but he might fit well on the Jazz. And, and you might be right. I, like, I have an aesthetic – aversion to Kessler Edwards I hate his shot but it does go in so you know don't, don't complain about what works um one of my big issues with Kessler I think that with the Jazz on his defense it looks solid almost everywhere but his closeouts and the, and the way that he sometimes tries to recover on defense has me a little bit hesitant to be like that's who the Jazz should target and I just think there'll be better people to target in their range um but I, I wouldn't hate Kessler Edwards as a Jazz pick he's just not my favorite Yep. So, so you have him, Adam, at 57 on your big board. And, and again, for listeners, if you're not following the box and one underscore on Twitter, um, you can you can go there. I believe the pinned tweet is a link to this same um, Google Doc that I'm staring at right now yeah. that has um, links to all of the video scouting reports. It, it, it has players grouped by skill categories. It has several versions of of Adam's mock draft. So I'm looking at that right now. You have Kessler at 57 on your big board, which, which means that by, you know, sheer talent and, 
And, uh, you know, by that projection, you're talking about someone who's like a fringe draft pick at all. So does he feel like a reach at 30 or am I reading too much into like the big board rankings and I shouldn't get hung up on that? If, if it were me, I would think it's a reach at 30. Um, but based on where consensus is and, and where a lot of his name gets flirted with, you know, 30 might not seem like a reach to a lot of other people. Kessler certainly has his fans because he's kind of that modern three and D switchable three and four, and maybe someday smaller five type of defender. And a lot of people value that. So that's why I think he gets brought up in this conversation as you know, what mainstream media outlets perception of who he is as a player might be closer to this 30 range than I would personally have him. Sure. Okay. Um, Who's your next name? Let's just, next name let's is Quint- keep it rolling. Let's keep it rolling. Quinton Grimes out of Houston, six foot five, traditional three and D wing guards more of the two and three than the three and four, but is switchable across positions. Has the ability to be similar to you know what we talked about with Edwards, a really strong help defender who can play right away, but is much much better on ball. Uh, some of the best flashes that I've seen in this year's draft class for guarding other guys in space moves his feet tremendously well, keeps guys in front, blocks a lot of jump shots on the perimeter, which yeah. is, is rare for a guy who's only six foot five. But Grimes has a unique kind of backstory. Uh, he came out of high school as a McDonald's All-American and a highly touted recruit, guy that was thought to be a lottery pick, went to Kansas and had a very, very poor freshman year. Needed to transfer, get a change of scenery, and work on his jump shot because that was the missing part of his game. It's now at the point where he's most consistent in a catch-and-shoot three-point threat, uh, solid off the move, and does have a little bit of ability to create his own shot. The highlights at Houston are tantalizing, but I don't know if they hold up against higher levels of competition or are his ideal role. The the great thing about Grimes in a 3-and-D type of prospect scenario is that he definitely embraces and buys into that role. It was evident in watching him at the NBA draft combine that he's just willing to do the little things to go in there and uh, and make his team better. And I think that that's something that's often unheralded but really sings in Utah's system. If you're in the right place and the ball finds you and the ball moves, not only do you you know get cleaner looks for yourself and your teammates, but you probably extend your minutes. And somebody who buys into that scheme is really, really valuable to me. That's where I have Grimes. Solid defender, fits in well offensively with Utah. Yeah, I, I love, you know, I, no, I haven't watched as much of these guys as you two have. In fact, most, most of what I've watched are the highlights you curated for me because that's just um, what I do at this point in the calendar is I go, oh crap, I better read up on these guys who might be drafted next week. Um, but I, I just loved what I saw both defensively and as a catch and shoot threat from him. Um, I think his defensive mechanics are great. I think he moves his feet well. He stays attached. He stays connected. Um, He he gave me a really solid, like, Danny Green, um, mid-career Wes Matthews kind of vibe. Um, Isaac, is is Grimes a guy you're you're looking at at all? Is he someone on your radar? So I like Grimes a lot, and I like him for a lot of teams. For the Jazz, I'm a little bit hesitant on Grimes because I see him as more of a two-guard, and with Donovan Mitchell and with Jordan Clarkson and then Mia Oni, who has very similar measurements and and similar, you know, profile that's on that. And, I mean, Oni can come or go. I know that he's not – you're not going to, you know, live or die by Oni. Right. But 
there's there's just a lot of guys that are at that same kind of size and level and for whatever reason it just doesn't click with me with grimes i love his humility and where he's come from with the story that adam was just sharing about you know he was that mcdonald's all-american guy and then he just completely reworked and and changed who he was um i i think that he would be a good fit on the jazz one of the things that i don't love about grimes and it's kind of a pick your poison when you're at 30 He's not a stellar athlete, and I think one of the major things that the Jazz are missing is athleticism on the team. They have a lot of guys who are solid and skilled, but they just don't have those pop-off-the-charts athletes um, deeper on the depth chart. Um, and, and I know this is a little bit hypocritical. I was actually just having this discussion the other day with a, um, a, a draft Nick, a Suns fan um, who loves Grimes. I, I don't see the fit as well, but I'm also in love with Josh Christopher, who's another guy that's, that's kind of on the board, and he's a very similar size, very similar profile. Um, I just think Christopher's got a higher upside. It's much more of a gamble pick, but he's got a higher upside. Um, and so if you went with a guy, if you're looking at two kind of the big two guards that can guard up positions and, and have that defense, I would rather take the, the gamble on Joshua Christopher if he's there and and get the kind of guy who um you know christopher has terrible shot selection doesn't make great decisions but you, you see him pop and you're just like oh th this guy could be a really big contributor in the nba and um i i look at a guy like jordan clarkson and i'm like if the jazz can fix jordan clarkson's shot selection <laughs> to a degree but to a to a real degree um i think that they could work with a guy like joshua christopher and his older brother um actually played for the jazz i think it was only five games back in 2015 but he's already familiar with uh, a few of the jazz teammates who are still there i think favors and gobert and Ingles were all on the team back in 2015 2015 so um i i like grimes if it were between grimes and christopher i'd rather go with christopher okay fair enough we're talking about grimes who's 32 on adam's big board christopher who is 30 on the big board so now to be clear a big board isn't the same as a mock draft this doesn't factor in how we think teams will pick or how we think you know who we think will be on the board at 30 but but two guys that should have you know solid potential and both of them come that come before that ledge adam that you were talking about at 35 right so yeah th those guys should be solid first round prospects in both cases and really interesting we, we talked about it initially what do you favor if you're around here at 30 is it the long-term upside which would be more like a guy like christopher or is it the you know, higher floor, lower ceiling, so to speak. And somebody like Grimes, who's just very solid, is who he is and uh, and doesn't have a ton of room for superstar growth that you might think. You had one more name on your on your jazz uh, prospect video. What was what was your third target there? I did. And Isaac, you mentioned athleticism being a need for the team. You're probably going to hate this this uh, prospect here. then, <laughs> But Jeremiah Robinson Earl out of Villanova, just a, a really solid all-around basketball player. The The reason that he's not mentioned really high in first-round mocks or a lot of people have him more in second-round grades is because of the athleticism. He did not test very well at the combine. He's not the quickest. He's not the best vertical guy in the gym. 6'9", uh, with about a 6'9 wingspan, so he's not super long, but plays incredibly hard, is the definition of attention to detail, um, and does project well as a three-point shooter in catch-and-shoot scenarios. He was in, the, I believe, the 73rd percentile on catch-and-shoot shots from a spot-up situation this past year at Villanova. So his three-point numbers are low. That's because he struggled more in the pick-and-pop and with momentum carrying his body away from the basket. 
if he's asked to just spot up and be more of a perimeter shooter, he certainly has the chops to do that. Smart playmaker, good off the bounce, who makes very quality decisions, incredibly fundamentally sound, and a great defender. Uh, actually, over the last year or so in coaching at college and the high school level, I've used clips of Robinson Earl to show how to accept switches, how to move on the defensive end, what you should do to guarding on ball. Like he is the textbook guy in all of those scenarios. Not a sexy pick by any means, but just a, a well-rounded, solid basketball player who um, I have high hopes for being in the league for at least 10 years. Yeah, I, I like Robinson Earl. He's actually right at 30 on my personal big board, so like square in the range for the Jazz. And there, I agree with everything you say about him. I, I would be happy if we got Robinson Earl. He's not the sexiest pick. Um, I would rather them take a gamble on somebody that has higher upside and get some athleticism. But those those fundamentals are there. He could contribute probably right away. And he would just be a solid guy on the team. So I, I don't have a lot of nitpicks with the, with the, with a Robinson Earl kind of target. I just... I feel like there should hopefully be somebody that's better in their range because there's, there's a lot of quality guys in this draft. And that's kind of what I was saying. I don't know that it's the biggest need with the guards. I just think that the jazz might have one of those guards um, provide more be available earlier. So like Jared Butler, he's ranked highly on a lot of big boards, but his health concerns have raised some red flags. Um, I, I think those have, probably mostly gone away with the NBA clearing him, but there's some mock drafts or a decent number of mock drafts have him falling low enough where he might be in the jazz range. Or if you get into the guys like Deuce McBride or Bones Highland, uh, I'm a, I'm here in Richmond. So any VCU player has been on my radar for a long time. And like, I would love for the jazz to go for guys that are kind of in, in that um, kind of range. Yeah. I mean, look, it's um, to, to your point around, around the draft pick, um, or, or around the using the pick on guard depth instead of focusing on an immediate need. The reality, if you look at this Jazz team, let, like let's assume that there's no major trades and that they re-sign Maya Conley. The Jazz have a very good starting five, and they have two of the best bench players in the entire NBA in Joe Ingles and Jordan Clarkson. They'll probably use the taxpayer mid-level on someone who will displace some of the minutes from their eighth and ninth men, who right now are George Neing and Derek Favors. Um, but like, that's a pretty solid front seven, eight, nine. So, you know, depending on how they use the TMLE, depending on who they're able to sign on, on veteran minimum deals, you know, whoever they pick at 30th, there's a good chance that in the short term, their ceiling is like 11th man in the rotation, right? Um, pre-injury. So you, you actually could make a decent argument for, um, don't worry about need. Draft someone who you think by the end of that rookie contract could be contributing one way or another. And, um, you know, certainly guard depth, if it comes with the right, the right skills and profile, isn't, isn't a bad way to do that. Talk me, I, I want you guys to talk me out of, cause we're talking about, uh, it, as we were talking about Adam's last pick for the jazz, Jeremiah Robinson Earl. Um, there's another player in that, kind of that same mold you know, a, a big three, small four, I guess JRE is kind of a, you know, hybrid big, but th there's another guy who just, when I watch him defensively, I just salivate. Like he's so good at moving his feet. He's got great instincts on and off the ball. He like consents when a teammate is in trouble. He's a good helper, he, but he can also bottle up ball handlers. Um, and that's Herb Jones. 
like talk me talk me out of that because I know that like that's a player who comes with some real liabilities on the offensive side, but he's also someone who like actually playmate. They actually put the ball in his hands and let him run pick and roll. And, you know, he's limited. He, he's a lot stronger on one side of the floor than the other. But, um, you know, he's, he's interesting in that he's six seven with a seven-foot wingspan and, like, seems to have some of those same defensive chops as JRE, but maybe in a more versatile package. Am I, am I wrong to sort of be tantalized there? Because, you know, again, Quinn does not like playing um, threes and fours who, who aren't a shooting threat. Yeah, that, that's really the the caveat there with Herb Jones. Um, I think it's much easier to see a pathway for a guy like Robinson Earl being a good spot-up shooter, even though the percentages don't necessarily say from college that Robinson Earl was a better shooter. That's a much easier NBA pathway. He's a little bit younger. Jones didn't even start shooting them until this past year at Alabama. I think right. with Jones, the playmaking limitations you mentioned, he's very heavily left-handed. Like, does yeah. not ever try to go right off ball screens. Everything he does is a fake spin or a hesitation so he can go stronger to his left. Not a good playmaker with his right hand. And those are things that in the NBA level, or at least in the postseason, you know, you're, you're going to get exposed on. Um, and at his age, you know, I believe he's 22 already, had a four-year career at Alabama. That's That's hard to overcome at that point. So – Herb Jones, I have him at 39. Like I think he's knocking on the door of being in that category. But how much bloom is left on the rose to add different types of skills and, and really patch up some of the things that he needs to? I, I don't know if I would spend a first-round pick on somebody like that. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I, That's why I have I, you guys come here. <laughs> I think I agree with Adam on that. I mean, Herb Jones is one of the guys that I've kind of picked to spotlight for the Jazz as, as somebody that they could look at and target. I love his defense, but he has so many offensive question marks, and he is he's just that older player. I think he turns 23 in December. Um, and, and so I i wouldn't hate Herb Jones, but those offensive limitations and whether he even can get on the court if he can't hit the shots um, leaves a lot of question marks for me. And I, I think he just would be too much of an offensive negative to, to get much time on the Jazz. But really, I don't know that many guys are going to get a lot of time on the Jazz, so... Yeah, fair enough. So I've heard you say that phrase a lot, Isaac. Um, I, I wouldn't hate this guy on the jazz. So let's, um, we have a few minutes left. I want to hear some of your draft crushes and, um, and we can get Adam's take on them as well. It's just the same as we got your take on Adam's picks. Who are, um, who are some of the guys that you are just praying and hoping realistically, like, you know, Kate Cunningham, probably not going to fall. Yeah. Who are the guys that realistically could fall to 30 that you think if they do, the jazz would be, um, silly to not to not jump with glee on their way to make, place that phone call to Adam Silver. So like Garuba's a guy, I think it's like a 1% chance, but it's not impossible that Garuba falls. Like he would probably be top on my board of people that might actually be there or they could trade up for. Um, and he, he's also, he's all D and no offense or very limited offense. Defense is just pristine and he's, you know, than a Herb Jones. Um the other guys that I really like, I already mentioned Josh Christopher. He's he's probably the top of my board. I, I really like him. I know that he's going to take some time to develop, but I just I think the Jazz can help him get through those rough edges. I like a lot of the guys like Zaire Williams and BJ Boston who've had rough seasons, but those are development projects and probably not who the Jazz are going to target. Um, one question, you know, I would ask Adam's thoughts. 
a guy that's semi-realistic, but he's probably going to be picked in the mid to um, mid to low twenties is Trey Murphy. The Jazz have picked the last two guys named Trey, spelled P R E Y, <laughs> who have entered the NBA. So I think with Trey's, if they can get all three Trey's, the third Trey will be the charm, and we can get past the trauma of Trey Lyles and Trey Burke. I was going to say the the first two trades didn't really pan out, and at least in their jazz uh, in their jazz iterations. Yeah, but <laughs> with a name like Trey, you know that the third time is when Trey is going to work. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, yeah, go on. Now, uh, Trey Murphy. Um, you know, I have him kind of same thing, knocking on that door of being a first round prospect. He has risen up very, very quickly, and part of the reason I think he's done so is due to comparisons to a guy like Mikhail Bridges when you see the impact that he's had on a postseason series and how he was able to just come in and shut down a lot of guys that the Phoenix Suns ended up going against. Same type of toolsy length uh, to him where he's really, really good at guarding multiple positions when he switches on the smaller guys. His length overwhelms them, and he's able to move his feet. Solid defender and a very, very good catch-and-shoot prospect. I mean, we're talking about a 50-40-90 season that he just put up at Virginia, and he adds the seven-foot wingspan and unbelievable defense to it. So if you look at just that package, it's hard not to fall in love with a guy like Murphy. Um, I think there's a baseline level of skill with the ball in their hands that pretty much every NBA player has or should have, and Murphy is not very good at doing anything off the bounce. It's one of the main reasons why I have – you know, recently slid him a little bit farther down my board. I had flirted with him in the late 20s and settled on him at 37 in the final iteration just because I don't trust anything that he does off the bounce. If we're looking at consensus and where he racks up and if he might be available at 30, he's trending upward right now, so the opposite of where I have him going, um, and may may not be around at 30. If he is, certainly understand the appeal. Go there shoot threes, space the floor, and does add that perimeter defender that we talked about a little bit earlier. But I'm, I'm still skeptical on guys who kind of slide up boards really late in the process. And I think Murphy is that, that classic case right now where the trendy thing to do is fall in love with him. And I'm not trying to be you know contrarian here, but um, that, that just always gives me a, a little bit of hesitance. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't know if this is a fair comp, or not, you, you guys can tell me, but I mean, there, there are guys who are great at threes, you know, catch and shoot threes. They're great at defense and they don't have that create for myself with the ball in my hand kind of mentality. Bridges is, is one of them. Bridges actually um, has done some creation here and there. Um, but Royce O'Neal, the jazz zone, Royce, Royce O'Neal, you don't have to go farther than the jazz to find a guy like that. Is, is Trey Murphy the kind of guy who could have that kind of success or, or do you think that that ingredient is going to stand in his way of, of being a rotation NBA player on a good team. I don't know if it'll stand in his way. I think it's just a massive need of improvement for him. And it's it. hard for me to, to really project where that goes. Like it's, it's not as much about self-creation for dribble jumpers and things like that. I mean, he, for the amount of time that he spent spotted up on the perimeter, he attacked closeouts and got to the rim six times for field goal attempts at the rim six. So everything else that he does did was off back cuts and in transition in order to get finishes at the basket. Doesn't create for himself and doesn't attack closeouts when he's run off the line as a really good shooter. So, um, that again, those are just the little pet peeve things in me 
when you have a seven foot wingspan and you're that athletic, you shouldn't be taking floaters. And there's something off about that. Yeah, that's fair. I, you know, we're all, we're talking about a team that has um, two elite creating guards in Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley, um, Jordan Clarkson, you know, gobbles up a huge number of possessions um, as well. Joe Ingles runs a, a bunch of pick and roll. Uh, Boyan Bogdanovich isn't a really a traditional creator, but he does some second side creation stuff and, and obviously hunts some mismatches and things like that. So, you know, there, there's a good chance that like getting a guy who doesn't necessarily need to like dominate X number of possessions. Um, I'm speaking generally here, right? Like I don't know Trey Murphy enough to say whether he's this guy or some other guy, but um, you know, some teams, especially when you're, when you're looking at a team that has multiple creation avenues already, some teams could just use a guy who like doesn't need the ball a bunch to feel happy and engaged and whatever. Um, so I do think, you know, I, like I actually think that's one of the reasons why Royce O'Neal adds some value to the, to the jazz roster because he's not demanding. Um, in fact, to be honest, Royce O'Neal should shoot the ball more than he does. Like Royce O'Neal should be a little bit more selfish than he is. In fact, I think Isaac, you've written about that in the past. Um, well, all right. I, I know we're 45 minutes in already, um, and we should probably wrap this up. There's a philosophical question that we keep kind of dancing around, and, and I just want to end here and kind of get both of your takes on this, um, because I think it is important. So we've, we've talked about this, you know, what do you philosophically expect to get contribution-wise at the, you know, at the 30th pick in the draft, especially if you're trying to project like a year one impact for a team that's like, that should be thinking about contending for a championship. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't know. Let's just, let's go there. I, I mean, I think when you look at like the Clippers, the team that, that sent the jazz home or even other teams, but let's just talk about the Clippers for a minute. You know, the Clippers have probably a dozen different guys on their roster that they actually trusted with playoff rotation minutes. And because they had that many options, because they had that many rotation caliber guys, um, they could experiment a little. They could, they could try different things and find out what worked in a playoff series. And the Jazz just didn't have that. The Jazz probably had, you know, the nine-man rotation I mentioned earlier, um, the starters, the two sixth-men-of-the-year candidates, and Yang and Favors. Um, me, Aoni was like the, you know, the nine-and-a-half guy um, because they did trust him with minutes in that 10th-man role to slide in whenever someone was hurt or missing games. Um, but we, we also saw his minutes taper off as the season um, came to a close, even though the Jazz were missing two guards. So that would have been a time where you would think they would have played him more, but the faith in him was kind of tapering off at that point. And then really after that, there was a big gulf. And so I, I guess the question would be, assuming that the Jazz use the taxpayer MLE on someone who can contribute, um, you know, adding to that group I just mentioned and assuming no other major shakeups and assuming they still sign Mike, which are all big ifs, but um, like, do the jazz, just, do, do they need to find a way to get a guy in this, in this draft who can be that, that 11th or 12th guy who can play when he needs to, even, even if he doesn't regularly see rotation minutes, like it feels like the jazz traded in a lot of their rotation depth to get a better front seven and then paid the price a little bit because, you know, with the wrong guys hurt, they just couldn't go as deep as, as teams like the Clippers. Am I, am I crazy here? I, I mean, what, how do you balance that, especially when you're, when you got to pick after 29 teams have already made their pick? Either one of you feel free to tackle that. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I so I posted on Twitter earlier today the the kind of guys that have been picked at 30th in the last 10 years and they've contributed a lot of them right away and I, I so I don't think it's unreasonable to think you're going to get a guy that can't contribute um and you know Quinn Snyder's shown that he's willing to play guys in their first year Royce O'Neal and Donovan Mitchell clearly showed that just a few years ago but with the latest batch and granted a lot of them are undrafted free agents and guys taken in the mid to late second round so how much faith are you going to put in them he hasn't played a lot of those guys so I think the Jazz can get a guy that's going to contribute. And this goes back to the philosophy. Yes, you pick best player available, but what does best player available mean? Is it the guy that's going to take two years to develop, but will have the higher ceiling? Or is the guy that's going to be able to contribute right now? And depending on where you are in your your team, uh, you know, cycle, that can be different. But I think that the Jazz right now, given what we've heard from them, they're probably trying to find somebody that is going to be able to play that ninth or 10th man role and provide real minutes and, and provide some value in games. I mean, Desmond Bain was playing rotation minutes for the Grizzlies last year. Kyle Anderson was a recent, fairly recent 30th pick and he was playing rotation minutes. He was playing 10 minutes a game for the Spurs his rookie season. And then he was playing rotation minutes his second year. Like that's the kind of guy that you you can actually get, and actually most of the 30th picks in years have been able to contribute at least at that level. I guess that's the perfect cue for me to just play devil's advocate. Then um, I think anytime you have a first round selection, especially this late, you should view it in terms of getting best guy available, but also if you have to fill a need, you do it essentially a year down the line, right? because you don't expect most rookies to be able to make an impact. And while the Jazz and uh, have gotten lucky with a couple guys who can come in and play right away before, and some other teams who've picked 30th have had success there, most rookies still do not, at least on playoff and championship contention teams. They may be able to play some rotation minutes in the regular season, and then they drop off to DNPs when it comes to playoff time. If you're going to anticipate what this team needs a couple years down the road, and get them on the roster, have them develop and sit behind somebody, and then when an opening comes up within that front seven or eight, they are ready and primed to move into that category. That's where I, I really do uh, think that you've swayed me a little bit in our conversations today, Isaac, in thinking about the backcourt spot long-term for the Utah Jazz because you know, if Conley breaks down again with injury in a year or two, <clears throat> Um, you know, if, if he's only got a couple years left in the tank anyway and they need an heir apparent who can play next to Donovan Mitchell, then why not try to take a stab at that player now when you know, hey, I don't have any major flaws or holes in our rotation that can't be addressed with the mid-level exception. So let's just go out there and get the best kind of long-term prospect that we can, give him a little bit of time to develop, and when we need him a year or two down the line, who hopefully will be ready by that point. Well, great takes both way, um, both ways. I, I really appreciate you both bringing your wisdom to this, uh, to this podcast. We, we could have spoken about a dozen other names that are probably in the jazz's range that, that uh, make some sense in, in some way or another. So if, if we didn't talk about your favorite guy, listener, um, it's, it's not because we have anything against him. You know, we, we're trying to move through a large number of guys and a large number of, you know, big macro questions too, in, in a little under an hour. So 
Uh, but once again, I want to really thank my my two guests. I, I shouldn't even say guests because Isaac, you're uh, you're one of us. But Isaac Adams, um, who does great stuff for Salt City Hoops. Um, you you heard him reference some great stuff he does on Twitter too under his alter ego. Uh, but anyway, he is uh, he's a great writer. You can find at saltcityhoops.com. Adam Spinella um, is you can find him at at Spinella14. That's two L's in Spinella. You can also find the Box and One at the box and one underscore where he posts a bunch of his uh, documents and videos and breakdowns on team need and, and prospect profiles and all that. So um, a bunch of uh, a, just a trove of great draft information there for anyone who like me is going, Oh man, we're a week away from the draft. I better start figuring out who these fellows are. Um, Adam, Isaac, any last thoughts, any last uh, words of, of farewell with uh, about, a week to go before the draft. Uh, draft night is one of the best nights of the year. The Jazz have broken my heart a couple of times in recent years with taking Grayson Allen and Udoka Azubuki when Desmond Bain was still on the board. But uh, I'm hoping this year that I, I just have that joy in my heart again, like I did the night they picked Donovan Mitchell. So it's it's one of the best nights of the year. Look forward to it. It's just a week away. Yeah, expect the unexpected, expect the unexpected. Enjoy the ride, uh, Jazz fans. Not to say that this is not a consequential pick, but as we've kind of run down here, it is pretty much about the meat and potatoes of the group that they already have. So uh, nothing wrong with any direction they try to go here. Just uh, get to know and, and embrace whoever does come to town. They're Isaac Adams and Adam Spinella. I'm Dan Clayton. This has been a Salt City Hoops podcast. We thank you so much for listening. Thanks and. Uh... Just a few days left before the NBA draft 2021.